Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hudson Institute. Welcome as well to those joining us virtually this morning. I'm Joel Scanlon, Executive Vice President of Hudson, and I have the privilege of introducing today's discussion and this distinguished panel. It is appropriate to be holding this conversation in the institutional home of Herman Kahn, a nuclear strategist who, frustrated by what he found to be conventional approaches and flawed policy, sought to help guide policymakers through the most difficult questions of the emergent nuclear age. How to effectively deter a conflict, how to win the conflict if deterrence failed, how to survive the catastrophe of a nuclear war. We are now in a new nuclear age. Strategic adversaries are modernizing and expanding their arsenals. Technology has proliferated. The enemies of America and its allies are on the march, and global security is rapidly deteriorating. It was far past time to reevaluate the array of threats we face and American strategic forces, the bedrock of American deterrence. The 2022 National Defense Authorization Act established the Bipartisan Congressional Commission on the Strategic Posture of the United States to review U.S. nuclear weapons policy, strategy, and force structure, and to conduct an assessment of America's adversaries. Earlier this month, the Commission released its final report on America's strategic posture, the first such report since 2009. Much has changed in the last 14 years. Commission Chair Madeline Creeden and Commissioners Rose Gottmiller Robert Scher and my esteemed Hudson colleagues, Rebecca Heinrichs and Marshall Billingsley, are here to guide us through the Commission's findings. We look forward to hearing from these distinguished panelists. Commissioners, thank you for your public service. Chair, the floor is yours. Thank you, and thank you so much for, the, for that introduction. Um, so we'll talk very briefly, um, but it is a report that uh, contains 81 recommendations. So I'm sure we will not do it um, full justice today, but we'll at least try and touch on some of the, some of the highlights. Uh, I want to start by saying, first, this report is threat-informed. It's forward-looking. It is nonpartisan. It is consensus. And we were all fully committed to our task and the, the goal of achieving consensus. So it provides high-level guidance to shape future decision-making and generally refrains from choosing specific systems. We provide characteristics of recommended capabilities, but we did not pick winners and losers, and I think that's very important. The time frame of our report is 2027, uh, looking to at least 2035 and beyond. And when I talk about the threat informed, uh, it's pretty clear. We all know that the threats from China and Russia are growing and they're different, and we have to be prepared to meet them both. The hopeful environment and the vision of widespread nuclear reductions from a decade ago, uh, longer even when the last strategic kibosh released their report, um, it's no longer realistic and the, pros the prospects for agreements on nuclear arms control today sadly appear bleak. That said, uh, there is no reason to stop pursuing broader risk reduction efforts when achievable and in the U.S. national interests. And if there are opportunities for arms control or other strategic stability talks, military-to-military -military talks, confidence-building measures, or other opportunities, they should all be explored. But today, the U.S. is on the cusp of a fundamentally different global setting for which we did not plan and we are not well prepared. We are facing two nuclear peers, and that is unprecedented. And so the nation must act now and with a sense of urgency that the Commission did not always see. Steps need to be taken, again now, to enable both near and longer term decisions. It's essential that the US, that what the US does now and, and in the next few years enable the flexibility 
that will be needed to reshape the conventional and nuclear force structure, and that we not foreclose options that might be needed in the future. There are five assumptions that underpin our report. Russia and China will continue their current respective adversarial paths, each growing the quality and quantity of their nuclear arsenals. China will continue to grow its conventional forces, including its space and cyber capabilities, and Russia will also grow its space and cyber capabilities. Each will continue their aggressive foreign policies and seek to supplant the US's global leadership role. The second, today's one major war strategy construct is no longer viable, particularly given China's current trajectory. Three, the six foundational long-standing tenets of US nuclear strategy remain valid. I won't go into all of them, we can talk about those later. Strong allies and partners are essential and make us all stronger together, but we need greater cooperation, coordination, and integration. And finally, the US deterrent must be credible, and it must be seen that way by our adversaries as well as our allies and partners. In addition, the US needs a whole of government approach to deter and prepare for the possibility of a two-theater conflict, even if one of the conflicts is opportunistic. The US defense and nuclear strategy must be implemented to effectively deter and defeat, if deterrence fails, simultaneous aggression in two theaters. China can no longer be considered a lesser included case for force structure planning, and nuclear and conventional force sizing and composition must reflect this new strategy. From a force structure perspective, the US nuclear modernization program of record must be fully implemented as rapidly as possible to deter both Russia and China, but the program of record, although absolutely necessary, is not sufficient to address the projected threats. And as we look forward, the transition period between the legacy systems and the new modernized systems will be very difficult. It'll, it'll extend over the better part of a decade, even longer in the submarine force. And as a result, the US must ensure that the legacy systems are sustained and funded so that the nuclear deterrent is safe, secure, reliable, and effective during transition. If Russia and China stay on their current trajectories, and nothing we saw would indicate a change, although of course the situation could improve, and we certainly hope that's the case, but we didn't see any indication of that, the composition of the force must change. Unfortunately, there is a growing risk of, con of confrontation with China, Russia, or both, and that includes the risk of military conflict, including the possibility of nuclear use. So to deter and prevent nuclear conflict, the US must increase its conventional forces, quantitatively and qualitatively, adopt a more resilient space architecture, modernize nuclear command and control, and advance integrated air and missile defense capabilities. The commission notes that each theater is different geographically and will require different forces. Without more conventional forces to deter regional wars, the use of nuclear weapons regionally becomes more likely. And without significant conventional increases, the US will need to rely more on nuclear weapons, increasing their role, not decreasing their role, as we have sought for years to achieve. While a large-scale conflict remains unlikely, the probability of regional deterrence failure is increasing. The US needs a force posture capable of simultaneously deterring both Russia and China. And we also have to look at, to our industrial base. Much of the infrastructure and industrial base that supports the Department of Defense and the National Nuclear Security Administration 
is out of date, unusable, or in some cases literally falling down. And both departments are struggling with supply chain issues and neither have enough capacity to meet future requirements. Investment in infrastructure and rebuilding the supply chain and the workforce is needed urgently and will be needed in perpetuity. This is true for both the NNSA production and scientific infrastructure, which we cannot ignore. We cannot ignore the scientific side of it, although we tend to focus mostly on the production side, as well as the DOD industrial base all need, all need work and attention. And finally, I would like to highlight the report's findings and recommendations on risk reduction. The Commission believes it is of paramount importance for the United States to work to reduce strategic risks. U.S. vital interests and international security are served by robust diplomatic engagements that reduce uncertainty and reduce the risk of deterrence failure and unnecessary arms competition. It's in the U.S. national interest to lead and to be recognized as leading diplomatic efforts to reduce risk. U.S. nonproliferation efforts and the nonproliferation regime have slowed the spread of nuclear weapons, and U.S. and allied threat reduction measures have successfully constrained the availability of nuclear materials, technology, and expertise to potential proliferators. So with that, I'll close, and just a thanks also. I should mention um, the vice chair, a former senator from Arizona, John Kyle, uh, who um, ably assisted in, uh, in uh, bringing together this team and, and this report. And with that, I'll turn it over to Marshall. Thanks, Madeline. <clears throat> it's great to be with you. <clears throat> when we were appointed 12 commissioners from, uh, appointed by the leadership of both the House and the Senate, uh, six Democrats, six Republicans, and it was not, I think, at all clear at the outset that we would arrive at, uh, at these unanimous recommendations. So you had 12 commissioners from across the political spectrum, but you have one set of recommendations that are consensus-driven uh, and with which we all agree. And I think the reason for that is that over the course of roughly 18 months, uh, we received threat briefing after threat briefing. We received briefings from across the nuclear enterprise, from, from a wide range of other uh, adjacent areas. Uh, we had input from allies, um, which we, we greatly appreciated, input from the NATO international staff. And we drew together as a group uh, because the conclusions that we reach, the findings, um, lead you to the inescapable conclusions that we've made and therefore the recommendations that, that we've drawn forward. Uh, I would highlight for you four areas uh, to look at. Um, as, the, as the chairwoman has indicated, we now must make modifications to both our strategic nuclear forces and our theater nuclear forces, and these modifications are urgently necessary. That word urgent you will find throughout the report, and it is quite conscious. It is manifest in so many aspects of, of what we are dealing with. It's, it's reflected, this sense of urgency is reflected both because of the velocity of the, of the threat that we face in terms of China and its uh, strategic breakout, the fact that Russia continues to add to its nuclear arsenal, and so on and so forth. It's also required because of the sorry state of affairs in which we find much of our deterrent force and the seeming lack of, of appreciation for urgency in, in many of the other areas, such as in the conventional uh, space. 
As, as the chairwoman has said, the, the Chinese threat in particular cannot anymore be just a lesser included uh, case uh, within the Russian threat. And, and that results in the need to both deter and achieve our objectives against Russia and China simultaneously if necessary. And so you'll find on page 48 uh, really the, the, the heart of the recommendations we make with regard to the nuclear deterrent. And what you'll see is that we call for preparations uh, to, to be prepared to upload our hedge warheads, if necessary, to plan to deploy the Sentinel missile, which is the follow-on to the Minuteman III, in a MIRV configuration in multiple warheads, to increase the planned number of the long-range standoff cruise missile, the nuclear-tipped cruise missile, increase in the number of B-21 bombers and the associated tankers. As Madeline said, we don't specify numbers, um, but we do very specifically urge an increase in, in quantity in these cases. We also feel that the currently planned number of Columbia-class submarines is insufficient and that we will need to, to both increase planned production uh, as well as a, a, a third shipyard in order to accomplish that. We also urge that we begin to examine, again, uh, the possibility of a road mobile ICBM. We further, on the theater side, urge that we address the need for theater nuclear weapons in the Asia-Pacific region. And we identify a number of characteristics that would be advantageous for theater nuclear capabilities that we currently don't possess. The second aspect of our recommendations that I would call your attention to uh, center around missile defense, and there are many recommendations, and I know Rebecca will, will, will want to speak to this too, I'm sure, but one of the most important recommendations we make is, is a change in approach, and that we need to field missile defenses that are able to defend the American people from coercive threat by either Russia or China or, or anyone else, uh, which is a, a, a landmark change. The section on allies is, uh, is something that I hope all of you will read through. For me, the most important thing is that we unequivocally repudiate the neo-isolationism that has crept into political discourse of late. And that we stress that our alliances are both essential, but they're also beneficial for the United States. Now, we don't propose to give our allies a free ride, and we do very specifically call on allies to increase uh, their defense spending to meet their pledges and their obligations. But we do underscore the fact that uh, the, the world order that the United States has established with our allies, which is what Russia and China are attempting to undo, um, the preservation of that is, is vital. Finally then, a little pet rock of mine uh, that I would highlight for you is the fact that for the first time this commission pulled into the deterrent framework the use of financial and economic tradecraft. And we call upon the president to establish a whole of government approach to the use of financial and economic tools. And we ask that the Department of Defense, which far better than any other element of the United States government is able to do detailed planning to assist the other departments and agencies that, that possess and use those tools, like the Treasury Department, like the State Department, like the Commerce Department, to help them with an integrated effects-based planning process so that we can hopefully better employ these tools in advance of a conflict to deter uh, escalation.
So again, many, many thanks. It was a, it was a great pleasure and an honor to serve on this commission and with longtime colleagues. Rose? Thank you, Marshall. Indeed, it was a pleasure and honor to serve. Uh, I will give great credit to our chair and our vice chair who isn't present today, John Kyle, uh, because at the outset they said to us, you will work toward consensus, we will work toward consensus, and you will be courteous to each other. And so we were. And I think uh, our discussion this morning attests to the fact that we have truly a bipartisan group here. By the way, yes, six Democrats and six Republicans, but also six women and six men, which I welcomed very much uh, indeed. And I was delighted to be working with Madeline Creedon, an old friend and colleague, but also a very capable chair of this commission. So um, I would like to, first of all, foot stomp a couple of things. Uh, and I'm going to begin with what Marshall had to say about allies and partners, the exceptional role that we really uh, recognize with regard to our alliance relationships and their importance overall to the security of the United States of America. And I think we all fully agreed with this, uh, this emphasis that Marshall placed on really pushing back against a kind of neo-isolationist strand in US foreign policy. And I know Senator Kyle, if he were here today, would, would emphasize that point very much as well. So I wanted to foot stomp that to begin with. And the second thing I wanted to footstomp was um, this, uh, of the three necessary changes to US strategy that we highlight, Madeline's been through them already, but I wanted to, to really emphasize this one. The United States and its allies and partners must field sufficient conventional forces to effectively deter and defeat simultaneous Russian and Chinese aggression in Europe and Asia. Without adequate conventional forces, the United States would need to increase reliance on nuclear weapons to deter or counter opportunistic or collaborative ag aggression in the theater. In some course, in some uh, audiences or in some uh, settings, this is being read as somehow that this commission is embracing nuclear war fighting, and in particular is embracing the notion that the United States should have an escalate to de-escalate strategy. I think this is total nonsense, and I want to draw a line under this we clearly express here, as a, as a commission, a preference to continue to focus on our conventional force posture. Yes, we spend a lot of time talking about nuclear force posture in, in the report, but we also focused on the need to build up our conventional capabilities as well, so we would not need to rely on nuclear weapons to deter or counter collaborative aggression in either theater. And so um, I think that that point somehow in, in recent days is, is getting lost in certain settings. And I really wanted to, to emphasize that because it's very important. Uh, Marshall's already talk, talked about building up the tanker force, for example. And we do emphasize the necessity of certain conventional capabilities being built up. The tanker force is one aspect of it. Uh, I think Rebecca will be talking about integrated air and missile defense. But there are a number of areas where the, the um, commission overall felt that we needed to be focusing on conventional forces as well. The other point I'd like to make in my remarks, and I agree with, with what Marshall and, and uh, Madeline have already said, but the other point I'd like to really emphasize for you is there is a certain sense of phasing in the report that is also getting lost a bit. A bit. We recognize this period between now and 2027, which is, you know, that was 
we are responsible for really focusing on 2027 to 2035. Again, that was our, our tasking from the NDAA. But this period is vital because we are beginning to accelerate our nuclear triad modernization at this moment. But we recognized very much the difficulty of the transition from the legacy forces to the modernized triad forces and the necessity of keeping a full focus during this period on uh, the efficacy of that transition and making sure that it happened. Because as we write in the report, there are no margins here. We are up against the schedule in terms of replacing our ICBM force, for example, on a timely basis. So we really urge a, a, a firm focus in this period on keeping, um, keeping the pace up and, if, ne if necessary, making some, uh, some adjustments to the strategic forces so, frankly, we can keep up to the, the levels of the New START Treaty, the, the limitations of the New START Treaty, deploying 700 delivery vehicles. And in order to do that, we may have to, to take some steps uh, because of the ICBM force being you know, as old as it is and some ICBMs perhaps having to go out of deployment. So all of that is in the report. That's the first phase. The longer phase, then, is out until 2035. And again, Madeline already referred to the fact that our triad modernization is going to stretch at least till 2035 for some systems and into the 2040s for the SSBN force. So we have to look at that longer, uh, that longer range as well and to think about what the future may be. For me, I see, and the report recommends, that we pay attention to a future with or without arms control. For me, that means, yes, we may make planned changes now, but if the world changes and we are back at the negotiating table, then we will have opportunities to make changes in those plans in the distant future as we are approaching the mid-2030s into the 2040s. Because of the fact that all of those capabilities, like additional SSBNs, would not be built until the 2040s. So we are talking about a long-range planning situation here, and it's necessary. We all recommend that it needs to be done. But those two phases, I think, are important to pay attention to in the report. With that, I'll turn it over to Bob. Well, as often happens, towards the end of the panel, you hear all the brilliant ideas of your fellow commissioners that you've uh, worked with over the 18 months. And, uh, and I feel as if everything I've written down is just going to be foot stomping some of the things that they said, but let's go for it anyway. Um, so I, I do think, um, as I reread the report, sort of, uh, you know, you, you're in the midst of it. You don't really read it in, in sort of from beginning to end. You just sort of hit different points. But as I reread it, there are a number of things that sort of came out to me as if I were reading this for the first time, what would I want to highlight? Um, one of them is, and I think we sometimes gloss over it, but that nobody is saying that today we are in a position that is problematic for deterrence against the threats that we see. Having said that, that wasn't our charge. Our charge is to look at the future, and if you look at the future and you look at the threats that are emerging, you can't help but come to the word of urgent action that we need to take now. So one of the things that we talk about is the current program of record. The current program of record has to be continued. No one is arguing that we make major modifications. It is something that was set. It is important. It is a foundation. Having said that, it was a program of record built upon a threat that we do not see in the future. 
So in order to say that the program of record is what we need for the future, I think is missing the point of what we see as the new threats. That's not a hit on any of us, and many of us were, almost all of us were involved in that at some point, defending that program of record. But the threats changed, and to hang on to the existing program of record in face of changed threats is not what you should be doing as a commission or as a strategy. So continue that, it's gotta be the foundation, but in fact, as Rose has said, the margin, we've traded on the margin of that and our advantage for many years, that margin is gone. We have to take actions today. Um, as Madeline said, we tried to avoid specific answers, but look at capabilities. The 12 of us have been involved in different stages of all of this, but it wasn't for the 12 of us to sit around the table and decide what the Department of Defense, what the Department of Energy should be doing. What we did feel it was our charge is to lay out what we thought were the capabilities needed. And as the departments go and look for this, as the experts go further on, that was the key for us. And I think it was an important decision that the chair and vice chair and the commissioners all made to lay out those conditions, to lay out the capabilities, but to allow for some flexibility as both the threat emerges and as technology changes as we look into the future. <clears throat> These developing threats will definitely have to call for some different ways of thinking about some of the issues that we look at. Employment strategy should be out there and looking at that. How we view arms control. Not that we shouldn't do any of these, but frankly, we have to think are there different ways to be looking at this. There are a number of things, however, that shouldn't change. Our overall approach to targeting, we make a big point about law, you know, rule of law, warfare. We need, we're not suddenly changing drastically how it is that we conduct and what the key pieces of a nuclear strategy are. We're also not changing, as everyone has emphasized, but it's a good point to emphasize, the role of allies and extended deterrence. So even as many things can change, many things have to remain the same. And I think I'd urge you as you're reading to look at where those differences are. Where are we looking and arguing you need to think creatively? And where are things that are pillars that we need to stand by? <clears throat> um, I think some of the really most interesting pieces to look at overall as you're reading through, um, industrial base and the support structures that the Department of Energy and the Department of Defense have. Access to technology, making sure the federal government can access some of the most, the cutting edge technologies. I think there's some really important pieces in there. I think there's a new, sort of a, a, a good turn on the space issue and how we look at space as part of that strategic posture. Um, integrated air and missile defense. I think it's now important that all of us look and say, Rebecca will talk about that. Um, <laughs> But, but this was a, a, a vibrant discussion, if you will, within the commission. And I think, uh, as Marshall pointed out, some changes that we look at. And regional capabilities, how we look at regions in terms of the integration of all of our elements of national defense. And throughout, again, foot stomping some pieces that people have said, I think I'd encourage everyone to look at urgency and creativity. There are actions we need to take today today to enable us to make choices tomorrow that we may choose to make. And if we don't take some of those actions today, a lot of them around the industrial base, the support structures, then we will have constrained the options for decision makers in the future to deal with future threats. And, and I think that's 
really we have to, that's one of the key things to take away, urgency and creativity. And I will also note the bipartisanship. I think if you had looked around the table or if we, in fact, we looked around the table and thought, oh, we'll come up with a consensus document. That'll be fine. That shouldn't be hard. 18 months ago, I think that would have been a nearly comical proposition. What I think is important is that it was a conscious choice. It didn't happen by accident. It was a conscious choice to find and develop areas of agreement. Look, this isn't the report any of us individually would have written, but I gotta tell you, I think it's better as a result of that. Rebecca. That was great. Um, thank you all for being here. Uh, I will also, I will talk about missile defense for just a little bit. Um, I, it was a privilege to serve on this commission. It, it really was. And I think one of the things that I did, I, I have never served on something like this before. And one of the, one of the things that I did throughout the, the, whole, the entire time was I kept going back and reading the 2009 commission report just to check to see what were they thinking about? Are we thinking about those things? What did they miss? Are we gonna miss those things? And I just kept going back and, and reading it. It's really remarkable for all of you if you're looking for something to do this weekend to really compare the 2009 commission report and ours and, and really kind of look to see some just really, really dramatic things that are different. One of them was, I just noted how optimistic those commissioners were about the direction of the threats facing the United States, pretty, op pretty optimistic. I mean, one of the points was that, that they made was their assumptions were that the opportunities to further engage Russia and China is rising. And then just the, the time that we spent together looking at not just what our adversaries are investing in and the direction they're going, but how they're behaving. And, and we really, spent a lot of time looking at that and thinking about that and then listening to our allies come in and, and talk about what, what they're seeing our shared adversaries doing and, and how uncomfortable they are. And, and so that, that to me really, really stands out. And it, it, we talk a lot about how that was all the way back in 2009, but it really wasn't that long ago, how quickly things have changed. And, and really at the time, to Bob's point about not being too hard on, on those who were putting together the commission, of course not being hard on them at all, that was the threat assessment, that was the, what they, those were the assumptions they were dealing with. It was also the view of President Bush, uh, W. Bush, uh, President uh, Obama. Though, if you look at their assumptions about the Russia threat and how they were, were thinking about it, it was very different. When President Bush withdrew the United States from the ABM Treaty, he said part of his comfort in doing that was that the Russians were no longer posed the same kind of threat that the Soviets posed to the United States. That's what he, that's what he said. And then, um, and then Putin at the time even said, you know, he was not happy about the United pulling out of the ABM treaty, but he said it wasn't going to be a threat to Russia anyway. And, and so that was, his, that was his remark at the time. And that was back in 2001, 2002. Um, so, so lots have changed. The threat environment has just simply, it's, it's very, very, very different. Um, my fellow commissioners have talked very, very well about how you know, the China's engaged in the strategic breakout. The Russians are, um, I mean, we talked a lot about what they're doing in Ukraine. Okay, so this is, it's funny, now, now that the commission's done, I'll have people, did you think about Ukraine? Yes, <laughs> we did. Um, we, just the question, did you think about this? That We really had to think about a lot and then to try to think about the U.S. strategic posture. But there's a lot of things that we thought about that didn't make its way into the report too because we thought it still sort of went beyond the scope. 
but, but we did think about a, a lot of different things and, and how Russia is using nuclear saber rattling in order to, to carry out its invasion, um, unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. So we did think a lot about that. Um, and, and then what that means for how the United States needs to think about continued threats from Russia, how China might be thinking about this, and what can we do to maintain the peace. So I do want to just mention, I think this is so important, and several of my colleagues have already mentioned this, but we really wanted this document to be something that the American people can read and make sense of. So we thought about several different audiences. The American people, yes, policymakers, um, to, to look at it. Whenever I briefed um, some Senate offices recently, I said, please share this with your comms team. This is for your comms team, too, um, to look at to see how we, how we talked about the stakes. So Marshall said that, you know, that we all agreed that the U.S.-led order is worth protecting. That's really important. We did not gloss over that. Because if you talk about the U.S. strategic posture, you have to think about what is, it, what is it that we're even trying to do with it? What are we trying to do? And we see ourselves as being as defending, defending the U.S.-led order, that we and our allies and partners, really everyone, as Rose has pointed out many times, have benefited from the stability and um, just the order, the systems of alliances, the sovereignty of nations. And um, so we really try to lay that out very as clearly as we could in a way that would make sense. Um, and then we moved on to how that's being threatened, and that we are in the business of trying to preserve the peace and to deter major power conflict. And as, as Rose pointed out, a big point that we all agreed on was if you, if this, it's been a goal for the United States to rely less on nuclear weapons in our defense strategy. But if that is to remain true, we've got to build out our conventional forces. There's, there's, no, there's no quick trick to solve the problem that we're in. And so uh, it's, it's some of it, I mean, it will be expensive, but if Frank were here, he would say, but, but not really if you consider, one, what it is we're trying to do, and then understanding you're not, we're not doing everything at once and that you, some of this is now, but some of this is, is for planning for the future, to set ourselves up so in three, five, 10 years, decision makers have the option to do some of the things that we think they might have to do. If we want 300 B-21s, that's not gonna be something that we can turn on in three to five years if we're not thinking about now for another production line. What do we need for more B-21s in three to five years than we have currently planned for right now that we have to be looking at in terms of supply chains? And that gets back to the defense industrial base. We've got to be thinking about workforce, supply chains. If we're not doing that, then, then really all of this is, is impossible or very, very, very difficult to do. Um, so that was also really important. Um, so, so I guess I would just say look at tone. Marshall was right on urgency. Same thing we talked about urgency throughout. We tried not to overdo it. So if we're like, oh, this is urgent and this is urgent. Not everything can be urgent. But we try to be really careful about which things we were stressing. That this is this needs an adaptation now. This is something we need to look at. It's not headed in the right direction. And then again, to what Rose said, also understanding that. I mean, the idea here is that we get into the minds of our adversaries, and so they decide not to go down this path continually. That's what we would hope would happen. And so, though we don't have to do all of this at once, exercising some of these muscles now and moving in those directions, hopefully would send a signal that, that we are not going to simply, over time, allow these adversaries to, to simply just uh, change the status quo and change the rules of the road, which China's clearly trying to do today in this moment um, in the Pacific theater. So, so that's an, another piece. And then um, 
program of record, it's necessary, it's not sufficient. That's a big takeaway from the report. Uh, we, so we don't want to do anything that jeopardizes it. You know, sometimes people come in and they say, oh, look, we can do things you know, cheaper in this way, and this is going to be important. It's like, we don't want to mess up the program of record. We want to keep that and make sure that stays on target um, to the best we can, but it's just not going to be sufficient for some of these other threats um, that we see coming and to be able to meet our deterrence objectives. To, to the chair's point about the tenets of deterrence, that's actually, it might seem like a really wonky point. It's very important that we did not decide to, we, we're not, we, we did not decide to, um, you know, rethink about how the United States of America has been able to, to the extent that we, deterrence is one of those things where it's very hard to prove. It's just the absence of something happening. But we have not seen a nuclear employment since the Second World War. We'd like to keep it that way. Um, and we don't, wanna, we don't want countries to think that they can begin redrawing borders uh, by force. And so um, that's what we're trying to maintain. Deterrence has held. And so we, we didn't try to rethink how we're going to do deterrence, even though we can use different tools. And we're happy to use these other tools that we have um, available to us. We want to be able to do that. But what we're holding at risk, we're still doing, we're still holding at risk what the adversaries value most. The adversaries value, and we list them in the report, what they value, and that's going to be true. In, it's going to be different as it applies to China and Russia, but those categories are the same. And so that was important to us. And then um, also Marshall's point, I think, is really important about economic um, uh, statecraft um, uh, because that's a, that is a really interesting piece that helps buy us time buys us time. So Marshall can talk about how we would do these in, in, in particular crises, but even in the peace time where you're in the competition time and trying to steer your adversaries, there's some things that we can use and tools that we can use if we bring them into thinking about deterrence that can buy us time as the United States tries to seek to make ourselves better equipped to be able to handle um, these threats that are headed our way. Um, I'll talk about missile defense for just, a, just the last minute, and then we'll turn it over for another bite at the apple before we hear from uh, your questions. Um, the missile defense piece is really important, uh, and it's in the, six, in the 60s pages, I think. We talk, it's important for a few different reasons. One, you can really, I would just uh, encourage you to, to, to read General Van Herc's public testimony, Northcom commander. Um, we we uh, came to the conclusion that, um, one, it's still very important, US policy uh, agreeing with previous administrations that we stay ahead of the North Korea missile threat for the US homeland. That's really important. We're not giving up on that. Um, we think that we need to continue to do that. Um, the other piece of this, though, is really worried about the coercive threat from peers against the US homeland. And um, sometimes people hear that for the first time, and that seems very alarming. And I would encourage you, this is, you know, sometimes there's always a lonely general out saying the same thing over and over again. <laughs> and he's been, General Van Herc has been talking quite a bit about the, um, the risk to the US homeland. And he's been very clear that he believes the most acute threat right now to the US homeland comes from Russia. He says it in his public testimony. I mean, and he explains what he means by that. And I would, I would encourage you to go read exactly what he says and how he says it. But, but what we're worried about is the United States cannot project power abroad without the security of the US homeland. And so as we think about what our adversaries are doing regionally and what they're trying to do, clearly Russia does not want the United States to, to, uh, to, to help Ukraine more than we are. Doesn't want us to help us to the extent that we are. And so that's where a lot of the threats against us with nuclear weapons have come from. They want us to stop helping Ukraine. Well, we want to make sure that that's not something that, um, that, that, that our adversaries understand that we not only have the will to come to the aid of our, of our allies, but we have the ability to do that too. 
And so we just want to disabuse them of the notion that there's going to be any opportunity where they can hold at risk anything on the homeland that's going to cause us to think that we can't come to the aid of our allies. And so I just want to think that that, that, that is a really important piece. We do not say how we're going to do it. We leave that, we leave that to, to the engineers to think about what can be technologically feasible. We encourage them to go figure it out, but then look to deploy it. So this is not just sort of another task or a research project. We really do want to... Want to, want to take away that coercive threat, that vulnerability, so that our adversaries just know that that's not a path that they can step on and be successful. Um, and so that, that was just uh, really, really important and um, really thankful. Just the, the whole entire report, I did the same thing. I mean, my, after, you, after it's published, and then you can, I feel like I read it over and over and over again in the process of it being written, but then once it's done and you read it, um, I'm just very proud of it. I'm, I'm, very uh, thankful for the leadership um, of Madeline and and uh, and John Kyle and and so and all of my colleagues. It was really a, a privilege to serve. So, with that, if I'll turn it back over to the chair. Anybody else who wants to add or um, say anything else? Um, well, thanks. I think we pretty much covered everything. Um, if there's if there's you know maybe two things we we sort of left out, and it's important, and it's people. Um, that was one of the things that, as we had our discussions across the board with DOD, um, with the Department of Energy and, and NSA, and it's all part of the industrial base, and it's, it's people, and we need more people. We need more people at all levels, and you know, scientists and engineers and trades and electricians and welders and everything, um, because you look at what we have going forward, and you look at what we need from a people capacity, and we just don't have them. Um, and it's bigger than DOD, it's bigger than the Department of Energy, and this is really one of those whole of government types of things, and I know we talk about whole of government a lot, and sometimes we just sort of roll our eyes when we talk about whole of government because everybody always talks about it, but putting together a training program, putting together um, scholarships, really, really focusing on what unions used to do you know, they were very capable in terms of producing skills and crafts. And, and going back and really thinking about how to grow a workforce is just hugely essential. Um, and then the only other thing I want to talk about is, you know, we've had a lot of questions um, and a lot of comments about the report saying, oh, well, it's just unaffordable. It's, uh, it's a wish list of military things. How can we ever afford this? And there are a couple things. One is, it, it does focus on the nuclear, but it really focuses on the conventional. And yes, it is going to be expensive, and yes, we are going to have to spend money. But when you look at the percentage of the GDP that the defense budget is right now, and how much smaller it is now than where it's been historically, um, and if you really want to say, okay, well, we really are serious about, serious about deterrence, then we have to invest in our conventional forces, in our nuclear forces, in our infrastructure, if we are going to maintain deterrence. Um, because we have a section in the report that really talks about the fact that um, war is more expensive than peace. Um, and this is, a, this is an important aspect of this. Part of the affordability is also bringing in new technologies and bringing them into the Defense Department and to the Department of Energy in a way that is faster and quicker because there's a huge amount of capability in the private sector, but we need to figure out our procurement system so we can do it faster and integrate it faster and not fall all over ourselves as we, as we go forward. So it is affordable if we are smarter about it, but it is also gonna cost money. 
No, I, I have nothing to add. You, you said your piece, okay. Do you have I, I just have. Um, I, oh, I, sure. I just wanted to mention one thing about integrated air and missile defense. <laughs> one of the important aspects for me was the recognition that we really have to focus on the air breather threat. Cruise missiles, whether you're talking about conventional cruise missiles or you're talking about the new nuclear propelled cruise missiles that the, that the Russians are developing and deploying. So I just, when you look at that you know, section about integrated air and missile defense for both CONUS but also for our allies and partners, you have only to look at the war in Ukraine to see how important these missile threats are right now. And the notion of the United States finally tackling this air breather threat against CONUS to me was very important. Bob? I just have two things, and, and it's true. One of them is on missile defense as well. Um, I think it really goes to, I mean, I use the word vibrant, I think, discussion. I mean, look, this is a section that it, I learned a lot through this process. And really, I think I, my own views changed a lot as we went through this. One of the things, though, that I think is important to make, make clear is no one's talking about going back to this Star Wars shield over everything, right? Please read the report. Read what coercive attacks mean, right? What we're trying to do is saying there's critical infrastructure. There are things that we would be worried that our adversaries might think with just a few attacks, a few air breathers, a few even, dare I say, nuclear weapons, the United States would be deterred because we couldn't defend some critical assets. Look, if, the, if an adversary wants to launch a full-on barrage, that's a full-on scale war. We understand that we feel we deter that and need to continue to deter that. But the, it's the coercive attacks, the smaller ones that we feel we are threat, threatened by and vulnerable to. And by the way, if anybody says that you know, coercive attacks or you know, sort of localized integrated air and defense missile areas is destabilizing, I challenge you to go and try to figure out why are our adversaries then, why do they have that? Why does Moscow have an incredible integrated air defense system around it, right? I don't, I'm, not, I'm unwilling to accept that it's destabilizing for us to be able to do the same thing. Similarly, a point that none of us made, but it was a question that was asked before and has been asked a lot, so I figured I'd get at it outside of, quote, prepared remarks, which is, isn't this just another um, arms race? Isn't that what you're doing? And, and I, I really feel strongly to push back on that, which is, Look, we have had the same kind of a setup program of record for many years now. And we lived under appropriate arms control treaties and those levels for many years as we wished everyone else would do. During that time, what did we see? We saw Russia looking to new and novel nuclear weapons. We saw China building up its arsenal and looking to continue to do this. So if what you're trying to avoid is an arms race, I would argue we as the United States were trying to do that. And then all the things that we were hoping to avoid actually ended up happening anyway. We're not the ones who are continuing this on. We are just taking a look at what the environment looks like and realizing that we are no longer in a position to say we can deter what we see the threats are out into the future. And I, and I reject this argument that we are the ones that are doing this arms race. Just, just to add that, that too, on the coercive threat piece, because the, the, concern, the concern that we, that we have, uh, and it's, it's the cruise missile threat, certainly, um, but that the, that, the, that the Russians may believe, not, not even that they could threaten us with it, but potentially that if they were to strike 
in some sort of scoped fashion the, the United, targets on the United States that we would, that it would paralyze us with fear, frankly, is the way, that we would, that it would not enrage, that it would make us fearful but not enraged. And that we would choose if if what if what if the reason they did that was because they're trying to um, redraw borders through force overseas against U.S. allies, that the United States, because we have our hands full here and everything that we're going to hear, that we might just say, "Oh my goodness, that's not worth the escalation," and then the United States steps back, and they can they can because they understand, you know, the Russians understand that. Um, the United States is the backbone here of, of this of these alliance of the alliance architecture, and so the United States has to be confident that we can that we can confidently uh, project power. And so, what this does is again, it's to bolster deterrence. And the last several missile defense reviews have talked about the importance of U.S. missile defense, not in this particular way, but missile defense in general, bolstering now. Um, the Trump and the Biden missile defense reviews, the importance of U.S. missile defense in bolstering the credibility of deterrence. We want to co constantly try to have our adversaries doubt that they could be successful in something like this so that they decide that, you know what, I'm going to doubt enough that I'm not going to go that way. And, and that's, the, that's the idea of what, of what we're trying to do here with taking away the attractiveness of that coercive threat. And to Bob's point, I've heard, I've heard people say, then aren't they just going to you know, wouldn't they just attack a little bit more? That's going to be a different calculation on their part, right? If they're, if they're, they're going to go even bigger than that, they're already making a different kind of calculation about how the United States and our allies might respond there. So it's this, it's that, it's that, um, that layer that, that we're really trying to get at. And then the other thing I would just say that I think was interesting, I haven't heard it brought up, is we do talk about, um, um, although I think it made its way in the report, um, how uh, it would be good if the Chinese would stop testing FOBs. Okay, so yeah, we go further than that. <clears throat> we the so the risk reduction section, like all the other recommendations, is consensus. Um, and while it is, I think, fairly gloomy at the moment, uh, right? Uh, it does hold open the prospect for uh, for changes in the environment, possibly allowing for for measures to be adopted. It is not. It, it, it actually lays out several areas where we feel, very concrete areas, where we feel risk reduction measures, specific types of risk reduction measures, and or specific types of arms control uh, efforts are warranted. And the fractional orbital bombardment system that China launched with a missile uh, received a great deal of attention from us because it is a destabilizing, first strike, decapitation type weapon. And so we specifically call for a ban on the development and testing of ICBM-launched FOBs. Um, so there are areas where the arms control community uh, need, need to focus, need to work on. We agreed that we should continue to invest in, in science and technology related to verification. Uh, because uh, if, we're, if we are, as the, as the, as the report uh, calls for and recognizes, if we're going to negotiate any future arrangement based on whatever our force requirements wind up being, uh, it needs to cover all nuclear weapons. And in order to do that, you face enormous uh, verification challenges to effectively uh, verify uh, limitations across across the nuclear spectrum. That's just another example of an area where we, we very much agree. Okay, we'll move to Q&A now. If you respectfully will keep your questions brief and please state your name and affiliation. Uh, we're willing to take questions now.
Hey, I'm Robbie Grammer, reporter at Foreign Policy Magazine. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk briefly about the uh, $3.4 billion for submarines in Biden's emergency supplemental request, um, if that's something that, that goes toward uh, rebuilding the submarine industrial base that you were talking about, if it makes any impact, if it's you know a step in the right direction or everything we need or not enough something like that um and secondly just wondering um given there is this this prospect of iran becoming a, a nuclear weapon state if uh the uh they take that next step and break out how that how that alters any sort of posture um that you have here while taking into account that russia and china are obviously the biggest threats thanks I'll, I'll take the submarine question. Um, so the, the difficulty we have is, as we've talked about, the margin in all of our modernization efforts is, is evaporating. And that's, that is very much the case with regard to uh, the Columbia class, um, which is why we actually went so far as to recommend uh, refurbishment or reactivation or construction of, of another uh, submarine shipyard. We also recommend or take note of the fact and recommend that the Ohio class submarines will need to be extended longer than originally planned. Um, so the, the funding that the administration has requested is, is quite important, um, but, but in and of itself that will not be sufficient for where we need to go. Um, as an aside, and this is not in the report, but in the event that we find it necessary to begin to put in SSGNs into the production line, I'm not sure. I'm not sure we've really thought that through and what the knock-on effects would be to the boomer production. So the submarine force got a lot of attention, um, and it's it's not in a good place right now. And I guess I would add on the industrial base, it is it is a good move. Um, I think it's very consistent with the report. But we also talk a little bit, it, it really is the larger submarine uh, industrial base. It's not just the Columbia class, but it's also the Virginia class submarines that at the moment are also way behind schedule. Um, the, other, the other piece of that um, supplemental appropriation request that I think is really interesting, and again, you know, consistent with report, and it's the whole of government ap approach. And there, was, um, there is uh, a request for some funding in there. Uh, for um, the International Monetary Fund to be able to counter some of the um, the Belt and Road uh, sort of initiatives, and I think that's also a really good whole of whole of government approach. I mean, that, that's a I mean, that's a, a pretty um, smart move. Is you know to, to look, we can do this. I mean, you know, we have the ability to to confront these problems, to deal with all of our problems in a whole of government approach. We don't, I mean, obviously we're the commission on the strategic posture. Our charter was out of the NDAA, so our focus was very much in that respect. Um, but we recognize to be effective, it's got to be much more, which is why we touched on the economic statecraft and the sanctions, but there's a whole lot more of it. And so I, that, that I think was really good too. Quick question on Iran. Um, if you will look at the threat section, we do address both Iran and, and North Korea in the threat section, but as just as you said, much, much uh, smaller than uh, the Russian Federation and China. I would say, uh, and here I'll uh, reflect again on what's already been said about the uh, non-proliferation regime and our very firm as a 
as an entire commission focused on the necessity of upholding and strengthening the non-proliferation regime. So uh, clearly, in terms of, of deterring Iran, the United States, I think, will have no question it will have that, that capacity. But then you have to look at the broader threats of proliferation on a regional basis. And the United States, I think, will, will want to, as a priority, continue to uphold the non-proliferation regime. And that means, again, we note in the report that very strong uh, support for our allies means that those allies, in the end of the day, decide that they do not need to build up their own nuclear capabilities. So um, I think that, too, has been a point in the report that uh, deserves a lot of, a lot of attention. Um. Um, hi, uh, William Chu, uh, Japan Chair uh, Fellow here at uh, Hudson Institute. Um, I have a comment and also a question. Uh, the comment is essentially um, uh, the panel talked a lot about uh, urgency and also allies. Um, I would say that uh, that's, uh, that's particularly uh, noteworthy right now given that we all have um, governments in Japan, Korea, Philippines, and Australia who are all uh, mostly on board with the same concept that uh, approach in terms of the threats and also the, the needs to sort of build up our defense capabilities, and I think we should make use of this um, window of opportunity when um, all of our allies and partners in regions are aligned. Um, on the question, uh, I do have a question on the industrial base issue in terms of um, opportunities and also um, obstacles. Uh, in terms of, um, and what it would look like, uh, would opportunities in consist of, um, because given, especially from a perspective of allies, in terms of they, they have a lot of the similar issues, um, does it entail, um, for instance, the Japanese building up, um, you know, repair yards in Guam is doesn't entail. Uh, we know about the Australian contribution to American um, um, submarine um, yards, uh, the, the three billion dollars uh, to the United States. But does it also create other obstacles that we should be cognizant of, be it say cannibalizing their own capabilities for building up their um, own industrial bases uh, or other sorts of obstruction? So if you guys can just talk about this a little bit, uh, that'd be great. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll just, it's a great question. I mean, I would say we did, we don't, um, not recalling very specific things to that point that we are making specific recommendations, but clearly that, that falls under the umbrella of why we think it's so important that, that the United States work, work very closely with, with allies. One thing that I tell sort of apart from even the work of the commission, I tell people is, you know, if you, if you are primarily concerned about the China threat versus the United States, we literally cannot win a long Cold War against the Chinese without our allies. It, we must have them for very, very, very practical reasons that you're laying out. They have advantages that we can cooperate with and take advantage of. It's gonna, we do have a nice section, small section, just um, uh, showing our support for AUKUS in particular, but understanding that there are hurdles there for, tech, for technology that we've got to get through to be able to, to share and collaborate more with the Australians in particular. So, I mean, all, all I really have to say is that it's a really great point, something that I think our diplomats really have to work for to see who, you know, how can we do that better and what are the opportunities where we can take advantage of where the strengths are across the alliance. So I, I would just add it's um, a little bit broader. Uh, one of the things that, that we really focus on, and I'd mentioned it briefly, is greater coordination, integration, cooperation with allies. So in, uh, in many respects, it's not just, well, allies can buy more in foreign military sales. That's not the point. Um, the point really is much more integration, coordination, and planning in requirements, um, in interoper interoperability of systems, 
um, joint development of systems. I mean, really looking at allies in a, in a very different way so that all of us together are able to confront um, whatever comes our way and really to deter because we are stronger when, when we are um, coordinated and focused together. So I would say it's, infrastructure is important, um, but it's much more than that. It's research and development. It's, it's, it's the whole panoply. And if I could just put stump the, the AUKUS point, which is uh, lots of people focus on the submarines. Um, great, and we should. There's the technology piece, and let's also, it's the UK, you know, is part of this as well. And so looking at, at how are we getting to really break down some of the barriers on technology, that, that most of the problem is the US, let's face it, right? We have a tendency to believe we've led on all these things, we have all the stuff everybody wants, and therefore uh, we can protect whatever we want. That's not the world we live in today. And I think we are slowly coming around to realizing it. And I think, frankly, the fact that there was an AUKUS part of this at all is really, uh, of the commission, is, is an indication that we see that this is an important part of where we need to go in terms of not just pillar one, but pillar two. How do we share technology amongst the three of the countries that are involved and named in AUKUS? But also, are there other countries that we need to look at? And how can other countries be a part of it? Is this a pathway? I don't know the answer, but I know there are a lot of people looking at it as, as in the US government right now. And I think it's something that we all, as the commission, thought was exactly the right thing to do and to continue to see how we could proceed along that path, not just with the UK and Australia, but also with other allies. Hi, Tom Callender at General Dynamics to kind of go back to the, the submarine piece and the, and the recommendation for the third shipyard, understanding where we are with Columbia, right? We reduced, uh, we got rid of the, any little margin we had there when we shifted by two years of Virginia in there. Um, so do you, do you think in that recommendation to kind of restart a third shipyard, um, and the time it would take, do you think that really addresses the key problem, which are workforce, right? Right now, a demographic shift from an aging workforce, right now, younger workforce, and trying to grow those at, at the current yards, and I think even more importantly, the supplier base, um, as well as the key issues with supplier base, critical suppliers, and stuff like that, that Admiral Panos and others have talked about. Uh, do you think a third shipyard wouldn't, stress those more instead of kind of focusing in on some of those issues of uh, kind of outsourcing more pieces, parts, than trying to do a, another whole shipyard. Thank you. Yeah, no, we talked about that, and I'll, I'll, you know, having been the deputy under in the Navy Department, the, a lot of these issues are not new, Tom. Um, you know, we, we, the, the struggle to get welders um, is not new. Um, but uh, to your point, I think our, our are we and we discussed this at, at quite at quite length uh, whether it was even feasible uh, or would it be foolish to recommend that we pursue that third shipyard? And we came to the decision we we must have the additional shipyard. Um, it it's got a lot of challenges and it, it is it is not a viable solution if you haven't addressed the workforce problems across the supply chain. But we believe that we've got to do both. Because it's going to take a long time to grow this yeah. workforce. I mean, you know, one of our problems right now is, is you know, we have we have a bit of a gap here. We have this sort of bimodal distribution, and um, we, you know, we had there was one there was one comment 
that said, well, you know, I, what I really need is I need 15-year engineers and I don't have them. You know, I have 30-year engineers and I have five-year engineers, but I don't have 15-year engineers. And I can take a five-year engineer and put them in a position of a 15-year engineer and we can pretend they're 15-year engineers, but they know they're not and I know they're not and it, they're just not going to perform like a 15-year engineer. And that's really the problem. It's, you know, over the long term, regrow the 15-year engineers in the middle who will become 30-year engineers and help the five-year engineers along. Um, but it's not going to take, I mean, it's going to, a third shipyard, if, if it even happens, won't happen overnight. So the assumption is, is you have to do all these things in parallel. Your report certainly uh, focuses on uh, hard weapons. Does it give much play to cybersecurity? So we talked a little bit about cybersecurity. We talked about space systems. Um, we talked about new technology. We also talked about um, command and control, uh, not only of nuclear systems, but also of conventional systems and making sure that all that was survivable. Um, so we touch on it and we talk about the importance of it. The real practical problem is so much of the cyber and so much of the space and so much of the command and control is classified that there's very little we could talk about in an unclassified report. Um, although we do, we do mention the fact that we need both offensive and defensive space capabilities, that cyber is important, and also that these are one of the areas where we really need to partner with allies. Um, our allies have great capabilities across the board in all of these areas, and these are really, and they also happen to be located all over the world. So for a space capability or for a cyber capability, this is really important. But you know, it's, it, we do have it. It's scattered throughout, but it's pretty narrow. Yep, and, and it's that, and it's also um, the, the sort of follow-on of electronic warfare. We talked about that a little bit, too, you know, and the importance of that um, and sort of reinvigorating uh, how we think about that as well, which has a correlation. Um, but again, it's, it's hard to get into a lot of the details just because of the classification. Got it. Masashi? Uh, thank you. That, um, I'm Masashi Murano, the uh, Japan Chair Fellow at the Harrison Institute. Uh, first, I'd like to respect the uh, whole committee members and the support staff to involve uh, in the preparation for this report. And I agree with that the most of your analysis and uh, recommendations and how, how I wish this report were an actual nuclear posture review. Um, my question is about the, the time frame uh, for reinforcing of the theater nuclear forces in Indo-Pacific region. Uh, looking at the NATO, the, there is uh, the DCA option, for example. But in Asia, uh, there is no the B-61 uh, depot. And also that the South Korea is too close from the North Korea. Japan is, the, of course, the politically sensitive. Even it's Guam is the, under the threat of the more than 500 DF-26s. And so that the, the number of the low-yield SLBM is uh, very limited. So this is the reason why I strongly support of the sea-based option and and also that I disappointed that the Biden administration has has been canceled the, the sea-launched cruise missile programs. So 
my question is, how many years do you think it, it will take to restart of the sea-launched cruise missile program or the and operational deployment? Or have you uh, considered about some alternative option of the Slackerman or something others? That's my question. So we don't specifically we don't specifically call for Slickem in or or any other particular uh, theater range capability. We do lay out the attributes that are desirable, um, but uh, and I have the section right here in front of me. You know, but what we what we again we use that word urgently that we believe the the U.S. theater nuclear force posture should be urgently modified in order to address the need for theater nuclear forces uh, either deployed or based in the Asia-Pacific theater. Um, it, is, it is in keeping with what Rose talked about in terms of how we reaffirmed the, the crucial role of the, of the NPT, that our allies feel that they are covered under our extended deterrent and that they have no, therefore no reason to pursue uh, a nuclear capability of their own. And this is particularly uh, true and of concern in the Asia-Pacific theater, but of course uh, with our friends in the Middle East and, and elsewhere as well. We were tracking, uh, as you know, uh, events as they were going along, and I think, although it doesn't specifically appear as a recommendation in the report, but as I recollect our discussions, I think we were all quite positive about uh, the uh, statement uh, with regard to uh, extended deterrence uh, that was reached with Seoul with ROK while uh, the president was here for his summit meeting. That was all taking place as our discussions were going on. So I think it's just to underscore that we recognize the importance of that extended deterrence relationship in Asia as well as in NATO Europe. In NATO Europe, we've got a situation where the Modernization of the B-6112 has now been completed, and dual-capable aircraft acquisitions are going on. Uh, so the F-35 acquisitions now, that, that issue has, uh, has moved forward in a very positive way. So we were, uh, I think, very positive about also uh, attention to the extended deterrent uh, in the Asia-Pacific. And one thing we did discuss uh, is uh, how is it possible for perhaps some of the experience of the NATO European allies to be conveyed and to, to help bolster uh, the experience of the allies in the Asia Pacific? Is there some you know, cooperation and exercises and training that could go on, for example? So we did a lot of discussion of these issues and, and talked about them quite a bit without, uh, as I said, uh, and as we've all been saying, uh, picking winners or losers in this in this regard, or recommending any particular program. One other thing we oh, mentioned, uh, which should should get some attention, is that I think we we're fairly comfortable that U.S. European Command um, exercises and understands how to do integrated nuclear conventional planning. Uh, I'm not sure we're as comfortable or confident in terms of U.S. Indo-PACOM. And therefore, we we urge we we ask that uh, that they ensure that that integrated planning is conducted. You'll also find elsewhere in the report a discussion uh, on revitalization of the nuclear planning group, in increasing the number of exercises, the inclusion of non-nuclear allies in, in in some of those exercises to the to the extent practicable, um, as reinforcing on the NATO on the NATO side of the equation. So there, and the, just the the follow-on, I mean, the, the one 
you know, we have several comments about the about the um, attributes, but one of them I just want to highlight is that it that they be forward deployed or deployable. So it obviously on the deployed basis, that's up to a host country. That's a host country decision, and we don't make any recommendations about that. Um, other than obviously in Europe, we already have the B sixty one uh, 12s on their way, um, but it's it's important that we have those options that they be forward deployed or deployable. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, and uh, thank you for the commissioners that are here today. Mark Newton from the from the British Embassy. I mean, I think the the piece of work that you have done is. Uh, incredibly important and um, shows how seriously you've been thinking about these issues. It's got a range of recommendations in there that uh, are kind of absolutely, as you as you said, kind of um, necessary. Uh, and and the work uh, that needs to be done is is vital. Um, I'm conscious that the report is is landing at a you know, moment where there isn't a shortage of of other news, and there is a risk, therefore, that that it doesn't necessarily get the attention that the recommendations deserve. And so I wondered if you could say a little bit about how you think the document has landed uh, on the Hill and whether there's more that uh, others who support kind of um, things in it could be doing to make sure that people have read it and paid attention and are acting on the recommendations. Thank you. So we had one hearing already um, last week with the Senate Armed Services Committee um, where um, Tentatively planning another one with the House Armed Services Committee. Um, I won't comment on the functionality of the House at the moment, but um, tentatively that's planned for the 15th of November, so we'll see how that, how that works. Um, but it is, I mean, it is an issue. I mean, we, when we did our rollout date, we were very worried that the government might be shut down. We had no idea that, what, four days prior to our rollout, um, we'd have the, the conflict in uh, Israel and Gaza. But um, it, is, it is important. I think we're going to try very hard forums like this. Um, we also would like to identify other opportunities around the country um, and, and I'll turn it back to you, too. I mean, any opportunities that you see uh, to get this report circulated um, you know, amongst, amongst uh, British Embassy, um, amongst others, you know, hosting roundtables with other allies, all of these things we're very much open to. Because it's um, first, it's a tough subject. Um, the report is a little bit, um, as Rose has said in the past, hard-edged, um, and it's not—it's not a very comfortable uh, recommendation where we find or situation where we find ourselves. So I, I think you're absolutely right. Even if we didn't have all these extraneous things, I think it is—it would also be hard um, to get this message to get this message out. But I think it's important. One of the things we call upon is um, various—you know—various elected leaders try and understand this report, try and take this report, and then talk about it um, as they go home to their districts, try to socialize it a little bit. Look, the, the 2009 commission report didn't have a shelf life of one or two or three years. The recommendations they made were valid for, for many years. Um, and the same will be true in this case. And the other thing that guarantees that these recommendations and the thought process that underpin them will remain front of mind is because Russia and China show no signs of stopping what they're doing, which, which is the threat that drove the consensus and the recommendations here. So I, I think the report we've produced, yes, while, while we have a, 
the situation in the House and so on and so forth with political campaigns, um, it will nevertheless remain relevant and I think of use uh, to the, the defense establishment in particular for, for quite a few years. I, I would also just say too, I was talking with um, a, a journalist a couple days ago about the report and how the report was going. And he said, you know, it's just a shame that, you know, I mean, it's, it's just, it's a, understandably, the world's attention is on what's going on with Israel and Gaza and, and what's about to happen there. And so it's sort of unrelated to the report. I'm like, no, it's directly related to the report. Um, and so, you know, I think as a commissioner, every, over the last year plus that we spent looking at the threats and looking how our adversaries are sometimes, and we talk about that there might be um, opportunistic aggression that might happen, what our adversaries might do to collaborate, exploit one another's, you know, actions over here to do this. And so, you know, I'm to the point where I, I think, when I see things happening in the world, I'm like, oh my goodness, then this could happen, then this could happen. So, you know, I, I think it really, what, what we're seeing now and with um, the Biden administration, I think appropriately rushing in other uh, means of American hard power to deter other would-be aggressors, the Iranians obviously in particular with the, the THAAD battery um, in addition to naval power, I mean, really underscores many of the big points in our report about limited uh, numbers of these things that, that we need to be able to produce more of. And, um, and then also, you know, Congress is going to be debating now weapons to, provision, to provide to Ukraine, weapons to Israel, weapons to the Pacific, and, um, and, and our report. Those are all different. Many of those are different weapons packages, so I think we can do all three of those things. Um, but, but it gets back to defense industrial base and, and the fact that the, uh, the United States' ability to project power abroad is still based on um, on our deterrent holding, our strategic deterrent holding. And, and so, you know, I think it's all related. I mean, I think my commissioners um, would, would agree with that. But connecting those dots and explaining that in, in a way, I think, is to, to Marshall's point, too. I mean, everything we write in this report is going to be um, incredibly relevant uh, for the foreseeable future, I think. There's a couple over here. Yeah, there's one over here. Uh, Komei Suzaki, another Japan chair, chair fellow here. Um, thank you for the reports. Um, uh, could you uh, um, elaborate more about the financial and economic measures you re wrote in the report? For example, do they include the uh, counteroffensive or counter-strike capabilities, like uh, selling uh, bonds or devaluing their uh, adversaries' currencies? We don't go into depth on, on those kinds of topics. And, and as a matter of policy, uh, the United States government does not attempt to manipulate currency or, or engage in such activities. Um, but we do have a, uh, a wide range of tools that are available that various presidents, re really I think we saw uh, the strongest evolution of this begin in the Obama administration with the response to the, to the seizure of Crimea. And a series of restrictions were then put on further investment in Russian oil and gas exploration, um, certain, uh, certain further restrictions on, on other types of investments that could be made. During the Trump administration, you saw uh, an evolution of capability, uh, particularly with regard to Iran, where uh, a full sweep of, of sanctions and other limitations and controls were placed uh, causing a, a significant drop in, in Iranian oil production 
a collapse in the Iranian currency as a result of these restrictions and so on. And then again, in the Biden administration, we've seen further efforts to, to impose consequences on Russia for its, its a further aggression into Ukraine. What we are calling for is for the Department of Defense to help, not to take in, step in and control, because they can't, it's not their tools, but to help the departments and agencies that have the export control responsibilities, like, like Commerce Department, Treasury and State with sanctions authorities, to think through in a phased way, the same way we think through in a phased way for employment of kinetic force, to think through in a phased way the application of these various different tools over time in an effort, for instance, to deter Xi Jinping from thinking that he can conquer Taiwan. Um, a major, major challenge because the, while Russia's economy is the size of the state of Texas, uh, China's economy is the second largest in the world and the supply chains are so fully intertwined that many of the tools that we have available, we may find that we're unwilling to employ because we haven't done the hard thinking and planning in advance. Uh, this is uh, Kathy Xue from VOA. Uh, from the DOD's report uh, last week, it shows China is uh, exploring the development of uh, conventionally armed intercontinental range missiles. And they're fielding the DF-53 uh, and fielding the GL-3 uh, GL, uh, to their gene class as SBN that can range, uh, reach the continental US. Uh, so my question is to strike the continental U.S., is that the strategy China has been focusing on investing more resources in recent years and that the U.S. have sufficient capability or defense system against those uh, kind of weapons? Um, or uh, does the U.S. have um, enough uh, whether conventional or nuclear weapons to strike the mainland China when necessary as well? And the uh, second question is um, nuclear weapons. Um, so how likely will China take advantage of this uh, Ukraine war and uh, Israel war to start a war in Taiwan or South China Sea? And if they use nuclear weapons, how likely will they uh, abandon their public announced no first use policy and have this first strike? And what would be the U.S. Uh, solution in response to that? And uh, sorry, last quick question is, um, what is your assessment on China's low yield uh, uh, theater range nuclear weapons? And is it necessary to field the SLCMN in the Indo-Pacific? Thanks. Do you want me to take a stab? Okay. Yeah. I mean, those are all very important, great questions. I mean, I would just say one of the things that the commission grappled with is that China is rapidly investing in a variety of weapon systems. And that's <clears throat> that to write a report when things are moving is, is challenging. And that's why we looked at the trajectory that China was, was headed on and headed that, that trajectory it was on and to try to make recommendations to deal with that in particular um, trend. And, and that's, that's why we made the recommendations we made. Um, I mean, I, I don't, do you want to talk about the specific point, the last points, Marshall, on theater? Or not? Well, I mean, you know, the, the, the commander of U.S. Strategic Command has notified Congress that China now possesses more ICBM silos than we do. Uh, that's not to say that each silo is filled with a missile that has a warhead on it yet, but this is clearly uh, evidence. Uh, and in the commission report, which is consistent with the DOD report that was just issued, 
we actually lay out the uh, the unclassified numbers that we believe this trajectory probably represents, at least as best we understand it today. One of the uh, recommendations that we make um, in the non-nuclear section of the report is, is that much more emphasis needs to be placed on certain conventional capabilities uh, like hypersonics and like um, the conventional prompt strike type capabilities that the Navy is, is contemplating. Uh, we, we feel that there's probably not enough urgency being attached to the development and fielding of such capabilities, and we'd like to see uh, an emphasis placed there on these medium-range cruise and ballistic uh, capabilities, conventional. Also, the hypersonics, that was another area where we didn't see a sufficient lack of urgency was um, on the development of hypersonics. Um, there's, a, there's a corollary to your question. Um, that I also that I think is important and it's discussed a little it, it is discussed in that report but it's it's also um, a broader level of concern with respect to with respect to China um, and that's the exfiltration of intellectual property uh, across the board from the US um, it both in defense contractors from non-defense contractors from universities and elsewhere um, and that's something we really have to get serious about is how to protect our um, technology. And I don't mean this in a sense that we have to um, not share because we do have to share, but we have to make sure it isn't stolen. Um, and we have to make sure that we preserve our economic and technological leadership, um, both, uh, both in the US and, and also with our allies. So this is a, another area. You had asked a little bit about some of the soft things. This is one of those soft things that I think we have to get much better at from a whole of government approach. I'll say one more thing too that the commission, you know, we're not all China experts, Russia experts, North Korea experts, you know, we so but we we know that there's a lot we don't know about China's intentions. And and so we we um, we spent a lot of time listening. We, we really sought out experts to try to understand the best we could to make the recommendations and findings we could. And just one of the things that, that obviously that you know about China is they, they do, they're non-transparent. They are not sharing with the United States the direction they're going, but that's something that is a, a marked characteristic of, of their behavior, which makes it very, very difficult for the United States to, to um, do anything other than potentially prepare for what could possibly be worst case scenarios. And so that's, that's certainly how strategists have to think about it. There. I think we might, we have, I, I guess what, uh, maybe just last let everybody here, um, do you have a quick one, sir? And then we'll just, I'll, I guess I'll just take over here and then turn it over and let everybody just have a, a sort of a closing remark and then we'll say goodbye. Uh, your last strategic report was 2009 and now you have one 2023. Why the long time gap? Congress. Congress. <laughs> you know, these are these are statutorily directed, and and in the same way that there was enough controversy that led to the statute in 2008 that then generated the commission in the 2009 report, that was a big inflection point. In other words, you know, it, it looked like there was a lot of hope to be able to decrease, to have more cooperation, to have more agreements, to have long-term possibilities for. Um, overarching nuclear reductions, and now we're in the opposite inflection point. 
Um, you know, we, we tried to go down that road, the rest of the world didn't, and so now, now what do we do, right? They're, they're all off increasing everything, and what, what's, our, what's our future? What's our strategic posture look like? What is our force structure gonna have to look like? So again, you know, we had this inflection point. So it isn't the years, it's, it's more situationally dependent. But I will say, and so. I hope commissioners will quickly correct me if I'm wrong, this was not a, well, one party had Congress and one party was in the executive, right? In fact, this was done while actually the, all the houses in the executive were the same party. So it wasn't a, aha, we need to catch you that you're doing something wrong. It was, in fact, a consensus of, we're at a point where we need to take another look at this. I, I would just say for my own sort of last sort of parting thoughts was if you really if you go through the report, some of our recommendations are not things that we're, are even that even require money. Um, some of the some of them are, I mean it's not, it's political leadership understanding getting on the same page about the nature of the threat and what we're trying to do. One of our very specific recommendations is that the Secretary of Defense and the Secretary of Energy establish the nuclear deterrence mission as the number one priority in each of their department's processes. And, and that, 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 so it is, it is getting on the same page and then bringing in things like Treasury so that we can, we can use the tools that we have and make the best effort that, that we can make um, and prioritize things properly and sequence them in a way that makes sense with the resources that we have. And so there's lots of things that we can do now um, that are in, in incredibly doable and urgent and necessary. I think my parting shot is a repeat of one of them that I said before, but it's, we need to take actions today, not on everything that we've talked about in the report, but to enable choices to be made in the future. And if you don't make, take some decisions today or make some plans today and you know, in the near term, you will constrain decision makers' ability to make correct decisions into the future. I wanted to return to the question of how we keep this debate and discussion going. Your question, how do we, how do we get it out uh, into a larger community? And I think it's really important first to repeat what the chair, Chairman Creedon, Vice Chair Kyle, and General John Hyten, who was also a commissioner, said during our rollout, which is read the report from beginning to end. There is a lot of detail and nuance in it, and you should really take it as, as a complete and whole document. Now, it's hard to you know, take that out on the road and tell people to read the whole report, but I just want to say from my perspective, I will really welcome the opportunity over time to continue the discussion, to continue the debate, to take questions in, and to try to convey, first and foremost, the urgency of this matter. We really tried to use straightforward language and to avoid Washington doublespeak in this report. Um, it is, and we wordsmithed every word, A lot. every word in that report. Um, so I do hope that you will read it. Uh, it is, it's a discomforting read, but it is an easy read. It is very straightforward. It lays out the stakes, it lays out the threat, and everything that flows from that. So please do, to echo Rose's point, read it and promulgate it. Print it out and give it to your friends. Yes, or send it to them. Or email it to them. However, I would recommend you read it online because on a somewhat lighter note, we apologize for the font. It's incredibly tiny. Um, and so I would recommend you read it online um, so you don't go blind reading it. Um, but a couple things also in here that are, are really serious recommendations. Um, and there are several for 
the intelligence community and for DOD in the analysis side. We have spent so much time over the last couple decades focused on terrorism and the Middle East that among other things we have lost in our workforce is we have, we have lost those analysts that truly understand China, that truly understand Russia, that truly understand their policies, their strategies, their thinking, and we need to get that back too. So that's another part of, of the importance of growing that workforce because we do want to understand what, what drives our ally, or what drives our adversaries, what motivates them, because we don't ever want either the US or allies or partners to take an action because we've misunderstood um, the action of, a, of an adversary. Uh, and the other couple things we talk about in terms of recommendations um, are really important and certainly given what's going on the Hill are somewhat timely. Um, and that's we, this establishment needs consistent funding. Um, we need regular budgets approved on a regular basis. Um, CRs really hurt. Um, they cost money, they, they add to the delay of the program. So one of the things we ask is um, for both the executive branch and Congress in particular um, to pass budgets on a timely basis and, and to have more flexibility in the funding and allow more advanced procurement. You know, all, the, all of these things that Congress can do from a budgetary perspective, which is just managing the money, it's not necessarily providing more money, but managing the money so that the Defense Department and the Department of Energy can actually do things faster and more efficiently. Um, but it's a good report, and as you know, pretty much everybody has said when we started down this road, I was very skeptical, skeptical that we would actually get here today, but it really is, um, it really is a testament to the to the commitment of the commissioners and not only to consensus, but also to national security that we could demonstrate this. So thank you all. Thanks. Thank you all for being here. Thank you all for being here. Thank you.